Welcome to the Hardwick Evangelical Church Weekly Podcast. And we are in our second week of looking at the book of Micah. And Enid set it up very well last week with the person Micah, the history, the context. Um, and We've just there's been a few sorts of odd comments here and there when I saw Kate in the week when I saw um, Enid earlier in the week as well is that is that with with Mikey you can sometimes feel like if I if I sort of went full on application this morning of how does Mike apply to us then I probably sell the other speakers in a few weeks quite short because actually Mike has a fairly consistent message throughout the book of Micah. Um and so it's quite hard to sort of pick, pick out a, a nugget of, of something that isn't just giving away everything that anyone's going to speak on over the next few weeks. Um, so I've been sort of going around the houses a little bit and thinking, what are we going to talk about this morning? And then, actually, as I was reading Micah 3, so if you've got your Bibles in front of you, we are going to be exclusively within Micah 3 this morning. I know that the guidance given to me on the preachers thing was Micah 3 and the first bit of Micah 4, but... Um, You'll have to read Micah 4 probably in your own time. Um, and what I see with Micah 3 is that I see, um, I think one of the threads that runs throughout the book of Micah is, is our issues of justice and, and judgment. Um, but mo- mo- mostly sorts of justice. And I think justice, we often think justice is a bit of a, a high-minded principle. And it's often sort of described, we see it in everywhere from sort of every platform from courtroom to prisons to churches and it justice perforates every part of our society it's the word on placards that are currently outside the metropolitan police headquarters no justice no peace in response to the recent shooting of Chris Cabo in London and it's the abiding mantra of if you watch football it's the Liverpool Football Club the justice for the 96, a reference to 96 Liverpool fans who died as a result of police negligence in Hillsborough in 1989. But I've been thinking about justice. I think justice isn't just a principle. It's a pursuit. It is to be sought out. It's to be hunted down. It's to be fought for. We shall overcome because the ark of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The famous words of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. And they're nice words, but is it true that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice? Is it not true instead that justice is hard fought and it's treasured because of the effort that is expended to achieve it? If Martin Luther King, is, if, if his words are true, it suggests that we need an act when we see injustice, as the arc is already set. We cannot change its course, although it's long, it does bend towards justice. And in the case of Chris Cabo's family, and in the case of the families of the 96 Liverpool fans, injustice is made an even more bitter pill to swallow when the injustice is perpetrated by those in positions of leadership 
and responsibility. The leaders of communities, the ones that we trust to know right from wrong. What it does is it sets us up on a feeling of betrayal. We feel betrayed by the ones who are charged, charged with our prosperity and safety. But as we read Micah, we realise that that is not a new phenomenon. Micah 3 reads, if you haven't already read it, then strap in. Um, it says, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says, as for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore night will come over you, without visions and darkness, without divination. The sun will set for the prophets, and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces, because there is no answer from God. And then from verse 9, Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed, and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. That's the scathing assessment of Micah to the leaders and prophets of Judah and Israel. Nearly 3,000 years of history and yet the basest human instance of self-service and subjugation are very real and apparent in every generation from then to now. And chapter 3 of Micah delivers a full-throated, open-chested assault on the leadership. It's a no-holds-barred, detailed and vivid description, full of metaphorical imagery. And it's, it's base and it's raw and it's emotional because the list of transgressions that Micah lists, they speak to the very human, raw and emotive parts of human character, the desire for dignity, the desire for fairness and the desire for justice. Immanuel Kant once wrote, nothing ever outrages more than injustice. All the other evils we endure are nothing compared to it. And it's here that we could, we could draw and as I was, I was looking through Micah, I was also looking through the other minor prophets, and it's here that we could draw lots of other parallels to almost every other minor prophet, whether it be Habakkuk and the impending arrival of the Babylonians, the death and destruction that that would bring, or to Nahum and the chariots through the street. The minor prophets collectively tell the story of Israel and Judah's indiscretions as well as the impending judgments against that sin. But I really think it would be a mistake to draw, to draw parallels between other minor prophets at the expense of giving them each the individual attention they deserve. 
while they're occasionally sort of lumped together. Sometimes you'll hear about the, the minor prophets being the, the book of 12. Um, and they do all share a central key underpinning and message concerning God's judgment and salvation. They do carry weight and significance in and of themselves. To treat the 12 as just contributing authors to a wider anthology, we risk missing key information, uh, facets that the author had intended to be read and understood. So when we lump all the 12 minor prophets together, we run the risk of only remembering the catchy parts. Who before this series could really tell anyone anything out of Micah other than Micah 6.8? that as long as we love mercy, act justly, and walk humbly. In that sense, we feel like we've nailed the essence of Micah and no further study is needed. But rather than seeing each minor prophet as a writer contributing to an anthology, I think a better analogy might be that, that of a, a band or an orchestra playing 12 different instruments each instrument might be playing the same piece of music. And at first, when you listen, it's almost imperceptible as to which instrument is playing which bit. But you remove an instrument and the piece is out of kilter. Or more importantly, you listen to an instrument in isolation and it becomes possible to pick out inferences, quirks and intricacies that can become overlooked when everything is played together. So the question we're looking at this morning is what unique and different sound do we get from Micah? What is he saying to us? And I think as I've been looking through this, with the, with the eye on justice that we talked about at the start, I think it largely depends on where we place ourselves within the readings of Micah. When we read Micah, where do we place ourselves within that story? There's a technique that people use when reading the Bible, which is placing yourself in the story. It requires imagination for the participant to picture, picture the environment and to place themselves within the story. An example of a story might be the four friends bringing their stricken friend to Jesus. The participant would view the story entirely differently if picturing it from different viewpoints. One of the stricken friend lying on his stretcher, one of the friends who is dismantling the roof, or perhaps a bystander who's just watching this all happen. Similarly, I think the book of Micah has the potential to be trans transformative to us, providing we're open to slightly changing our perspective. When reading the, the Minor Prophets, I think it can feel only natural to place ourselves in the position of those that are being warned or rebuked. They were regular people, we are regular people. We associate ourselves with the everyday people of the nation at the time, probably consistently getting things wrong. This feels familiar, I think in a way almost feels comfortable. It plays into our human psyche that we are flawed individuals. When we read about Micah and the indiscretions and the sins of the people, it's very easy for us to say, well, that's just like me. I'm that person. I'm the one who keeps getting things wrong. 
And the minor prophets, including Micah, do offer us crucial guidance and instruction on how to live a life pleasing to God. However, via the vivid descriptions that we get in Micah, or whether it's Zephaniah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, whatever it is, we ha- I think what we have painted for us is a life to live, but it's largely done in the warning away from the type of life that we should avoid. In the first chapter of Zephaniah, we read the word of the Lord coming to Zephaniah. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host. The readers of Zephaniah are instructed and guided to not make false idols because of the displeasure it brings God and the inevitable consequence it would have for them. Now, a psychologist viewing this might take a view that the minor prophets take a view that the minor prophets and the fear of unwanted outcomes shaped and dictated the behaviour of those around them. The fear of consequence moulded the attitudes and behaviours. By placing ourselves in the position of those being rebuked or chastened, our, our, our incentive for not sinning in the ways described by Mike and the other prophets is to avoid the consequence of that sin. And we could make the argument that that is not a proactive message. It can be driven by fear and driven by a negative reaction because of what we know the consequences to be. So what if we changed our perspective? What instead of seeing ourselves as the object of that warning, we associated more with the character and purpose of the one giving that warning? What if we read Micah and didn't see ourselves as the people being rebuked, but saw ourselves in the person of Micah? There's a very practical benefit to this. If we put ourselves in the position of those receiving the warnings of judgment, we can mentally check out if we feel that that warning doesn't apply to us. So chapter 3 is titled, Leaders and Prophets Rebuked. It can feel easy to say, well, I'm neither of these, so he isn't really talking about me. Even though we know the warnings are universal. Micah chapter 3, verse 8 reads, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Associating ourselves with Micah opens up a whole new understanding of this chapter. It becomes an active challenge to me as a reader rather than what can feel like a deep dive into my own inadequacies. Associating myself with the position of Micah does, however, bring with it more responsibility. It requires us to look through the confident stance taken by Micah and consider whether we might be able to say the same for ourselves. In that short verse, we can understand and draw out the following attributes of Micah. He carries a confidence to declare to the leaders their shortcomings. It's not a timid request or a notification. He is declaring it. He's assuming first-person responsibility of this. He says, but as for me, 
and then follows it up with I. I am filled with the Spirit of the Lord. He's not shifting responsibility or trying to make it a joint responsibility with somebody else. He's confident that he speaks on God's behalf. He comes filled with power. It's not his power. He is not doing this in his own strength, but it's the strength of God. And he understood that his message would challenge. He understood necessary confrontation. He got into what John Lewis, not the superstore, but the American civil rights activist, would later call good trouble, necessary trouble. But most importantly, I think associating ourselves with Micah brings us closer, brings us closer to and gives us a greater understanding of the love and the mercy of God. Lost in the heightened emotive language of Micah 3 are the four words, with justice and might. At first reading, we might miss them. I missed them on my first, second, third and fourth reading of Micah 3. But we might miss them or we might consider them inconsequential. You could remove them and seemingly not change the meaning of the verse. But as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord to declare to Jacob his transgression to Israel, his sin. That's without those words in there. But justice and might matter and are crucial to our understanding of Micah. Blaise Pascal wrote, Justice without might is toothless, but might without justice is brutal. For Micah to be filled with the Spirit of the Lord with justice and might is to understand more fully God's heart for restoration and restitution. He is not a brutal dictator exercising strength and might over his subjects, but neither does he lack the might to bring about restoration. He is a God of strength and fortitude, but also a God of mercy and love and kindness. He is a fair and just God. And it's from that heady mix of, of justice and might that Micah declares the sins of the nation. He does so because he fully understands that the God he is speaking on behalf of is both full of might and full of justice. And it's from this that I believe Micah draws his confidence to challenge the leaders in their conduct and behaviour. It's also this that allows Micah to cast down condemnation on one hand, but then offer the promise of salvation and restoration on the other. So with whom do we associate? I want to say it's never wrong to examine <coughs> our own behaviours through the warnings passed down by the prophets. It's never wrong as leaders or those in positions of authority to take heed from the words of Micah 3 and consider how we treat other people in our care. But our understanding of Micah and the other minor prophets might become a pretty depressing reading if we read them as 12 books of our own shortcomings that we beat ourselves over the head with. Instead, how might we carry the confidence 
of Micah. The confidence given by the Spirit of the Lord. The confidence of knowing that we serve a God of justice and might. To call out the injustices and the wrongdoings we see around us. How might we get into good trouble, necessary trouble, addressing unfairness and equality in our own lives and the communities we live in? For more information about Hardwick Evangelical Church, please click the website link in our bio.